So in the 18th century, the word mummers meant actors. Wait, really? Yeah. Because oh, you're covered? Mummers are actors. Mm. And so, yeah, um, this is a documentary about 18th century acting. I felt like it was more of a documentary about uh, the 90s. <laughs> about the 90s? About the 90s via being about the 30s. Being a, Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, there's a... Man, I know uh, you call this a very '90s, '30s film, but this feels like a very '40s film to me. It, really, it feels very '40s. To we're me probably going to well. talk about that later as well. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I want to get into that analysis, but I just feel like there's some flourishes. There to are it that, yeah. There you know, are some visual cues that yeah. you wouldn't find, but for the most part, there are also lots of flourishes of pixels in the uh, CGI. Yeah, yeah. The, some of it doesn't work. Some of it still looks. Some good. of it looks incredible. Yeah, yeah. but all things considered. For what this movie was when it came out, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's 1999. It's not a massive budget. Well, and here's what yeah. I, I think I mean, right? Because this comes out in 1999, and we are awash in uh, Matrix recaps, uh, you know, because it just you know, we've crossed, uh, as we're recording this, the 20th anniversary of its theatrical release, and just you, you watch the Matrix and you go, oh, this is a movie of the new, new millennium. This is a 2000s movie. And The Mummy, which came out like three months after The Matrix, just feels very 1997, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, every sci-fi movie at the time did, though. I mean, The Matrix was so advanced. For, yeah, oh, for really sure. Was, yeah, yeah I, I guess I guess what I mean is The, the Matrix uh, knew what it was doing, right? It saw the writing on the wall that we were about to have a seat change like in how we watch stuff as a culture. Yeah. Whereas The Mummy is like, we don't know what the 90s are because the Clinton years have been interesting. I yeah. guess that's what I mean. It's also funny, you know, we... This is such a odd, pair. you know, the, especially 99, we talk about the kind of existential films. And this isn't, I mean, this is just yeah. such a kind, joyous throwback to a simpler time in film. Yeah. Uh, which we really, I mean, even we wouldn't get again after 9-11. Yeah. It's great to go back, you know, we, t- we have the, we talk about these years in film history, 77, 99, 94, you know, whichever, 39, whichever film you want to trout out or year you want to trout out. But there's always a couple of films in that year that are not you know reflective of that ah this was the year when we figured out x or this was the year when movies changed and were never the same again right the mummy could have been made in literally any year after 94 probably right but even in 99 i mean the genre film of 99 is still so good like this movie would, yeah. is, holds up so well, and that's what's so fun about it. That's I think. a very good point, Arthur, yeah. So here you are. Welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast, where we gather around a table and we discuss films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. We are doing some potpourri right now without any uh, particular sort of marathon-like agenda, and we are looking at the mummers um, about those 18th century. No, we're not. We're looking at the mummy about uh, the early 20th century and perhaps also 3000 B.C., and uh, and also perhaps the late twentieth century. Yeah, so it's about like all those other times and uh, universal horror and all of that good stuff. So uh, there you go. We are doing that thing. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And, and ta- talk about a great week for beefcake watch, huh? Oh man, it was a good one. Fraser's mm. looking good. Fraser. 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 Yeah. Yeah. No tossed salad to scrambled eggs this time, baby. No. It's no. All no. Brendan Fraser. Fraser. Uh, truly one of the, the unsung uh, uh, hunks of his day, uh, somebody who was really done wrong by Hollywood. And I think we'll probably talk about that a little bit later yeah, on I the show. Yeah, I think that's going to be interesting. I, I did not get a chance to read that article, but I am definitely interested in hearing your thoughts about that. Now, uh, if you're tuning in for the very first time, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show. And we are spoiling all the way. Mm-hmm. And so uh, just be forewarned that yeah, that's... Yeah, Rachel Weisz's uh, reincarnation of the... the uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, she gets... Look, there's twists abound... Uh, it turns out the guy that looks like Peter Laurie is evil. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what are you going to do? 
Yeah, if you couldn't pick it up from his clues of his character, he's the bad guy. The pencil mustache is always yep. a pretty good indicator. And the cowardly uh, accent and all of that fun stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, But anyway, uh, what we'll do, though, is we will have a synopsis um, written by our own very Arthur Gordon. And then um, you're very Arthur. You're not just a little Arthur. You're a lot of Arthur. And uh, then we'll do um, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be spoiler full. Then we will expand the syllabus for you all as to what we would do if we were teaching this film in a film studies course. And then we'll get right down to business, and that business will be analysis. Now, as Dustin has said, that was spoiler full, not spoiler free. Look, you've had 20 years to watch this movie, and honestly, you don't really need to watch it to be able to talk about it. There's not a lot of bits to be spoiled, in all no. honesty, either. I mean, it's pretty straightforward it's, in what it is. It's adventurers against the mummy. They win. I mean, what do you expect? That's it. Yeah. yeah. yeah look, that sums it up. You, you'll have fun if you've seen it, but if you haven't seen it, hopefully this will convince you there's something there worth uh, diving in for. So uh, there you go. Let's go ahead and hear that synopsis, Arthur. Um, I actually didn't get to write this one. I, I had to find one. Um, a, a user uh, submitted one for IMDb. I just didn't have time. Uh, but this is a pretty in-depth one. I think it'll work for us. This is from Julian R. on IMDb. Thanks, Julian R. In ancient Egypt, high priest Imhotep started a forbidden relationship with An- An- Anaxunamun. Reading it is going to be harder than pronouncing it. Anaxunamun. Yeah. It's weird uh, phonetically. Pharaoh's Seti's uh, uh, mistress. When Seti finds out about what's going on, Imhotep and his loved ones stab him but can't escape the trustworthy guards. Anak Sunamun chooses to commit suicide while Imhotep is bestowed with the Hamdai, the most feared curse of all. He is mummified alive in Hamanoptera, the city of the dead. More than 36 centuries later, in 1923 to be exact, adventurer Rick O'Connell leads Egyptologist Evelyn and her brother Jonathan to mysterious Hamanoptera. While Jonathan is keen on finding the legendary Egyptian treasures, Evelyn wants to search for the Book of the Living, which would clarify a lot in historical knowledge about the ancient Egyptians. Unfortunately, they and a rivaling group of careless American adventurers, always the Americans, free Imhotep's mummy from his eternal prison. No, don't do that. Now, with the ancient and quite agile high priest on the loose. Yes, he is. And quite agile. The adventurers and scientists face not only a dangerous enemy, but also a massive threat to today's world. Imhotep wants to bring Anaxunamun back to life by using Evelyn's body. But he also wants to rid the world of the disbelieving crowd of democracy supporters well, okay. to be able uh, to enforce. Julian R., you're reading his, between the lines real strong there, bud. To uh, be able to enforce his tyrannic dictatorship. Mm, I like to think he wants to punish the evil colonizers for meddling with forces they did not understand. <laughs> that might be more accurate. I like to think that the uh, think quest for horny. Egyptian history. <laughs> uh, there is they that. pumping. Uh, there, there's a there's a quest for Egyptian history here. Um, it would help to have maybe read some Egyptian history beyond I don't know a Sunday school lesson about the Book of Exodus or beyond 1930 whatever's the mummy. Yeah, yes. Mm, yes. So they took all of their organs out through their nose. Mm. I think the I think this that, is, is, is this is Egyptology 101. Is that brain scrambling thing true? Fifth grade. I always heard that. Yeah, yeah red too. hot poker and it scrambles the brains brain like a out. like yep. fine eggs yeah. and then yeah. and you put the essential organs in jars. Yeah, that, that makes sense though because that's how they used to do uh, lobotomies. Was yeah. right up there. So awesome. makes sense. Mm. Eat gross. No yeah, the one time I tried it didn't work very good uh, on yourself. Hmm. Huh. Hmm. Hey. Yeah. Hi. How's everybody? Arthur, what'd you think about this movie? Oh, I think it is a delight. <laughs> it is fun. Um, let me tell you, this movie. Because of how well it is cast and how well these characters play their roles and know exactly what 
everybody is doing at all times makes the tone of this film work to have these very self-serious villain who's played very serious intentionally to be the backdrop to some great comedic beats by Fraser, by Weiss, by uh, Jonathan. I don't know the actor's Ooh, name. Yeah, I, I thought I was going to be able to give that to um, you. Arthur. He is great as well. I mean, everybody's that four wedding and a funeral's guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody not is Hugh Grant hitting their comic timing so well. Everybody is on fire. There's just some great comedic moments, and they never distract or take away from the action or the you know kind of horror elements of the movie. They all work together in such a way uh, to make this a lot of fun. And there's even this kind of meta moment because. Fraser has a line, Rick O'Connell, you know, it's uh, fight the bad guy, get the damsel, save the world. That kind of very, this is what we're doing. I mean, yeah. it's laying out exactly what this movie is, um, which kind of feels like a fun poke at some of the classic movies of the time, of, of the 30s when this would be set. Um, well, and I think it, it pokes even more fun at that by not letting uh, Rachel Weisz's character be a damsel all the time. Yeah, she, I mean, she makes a lot of important decisions and, and, and helps the team. And she's got this kind of, oh, she's the ditzy librarian, ha, ha, ha. But she's also very smart, very strong, is smarter yeah. than any of the guys, any of the scholars. Plays that... a huge active role in the final fight. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Rachel Weisz. Ugh. Launching her 12-year-old me yeah. loved Rachel Weisz. Yeah. 30-year-old me still loves Rachel Weisz. Yeah. And she is... Uh, done so well for herself and um, had a great career and, and she's so good here uh, in a role that is multi-layered as, as she is kind of somewhat damselly in parts but she's also got a lot of great timing co- comedy wise um, the action stuff works uh, the fun bit where she gets drunk at the campsite and she's like I'm a librarian such a good is bit. a good bit um, and she has a great we- chemistry with with Brennan Fraser as well they they work so well together, and he's he's not super orthodox as a league. I mean, he's he is very handsome, but he doesn't have that kind of rugged good look of like a Harrison Ford. Like he doesn't have that really rugged, you know, kind of scruffy look. Um, but he still does great job. He has a great look nonetheless, and he's so good here. He's so fun, and the movie is structured so well in modeling kind of a classic. 30s, 40s style that really feels like it is playing into the heritage of those universal movies, of those kind of swashbuckling adventure movies of that time. I think it captures that spirit so well. It's such an easy watch. Uh, and there's some truly kind of horror moments. The the body horror of the scarabs getting into the body, um, the mummy's design. Some of those moments work so well uh, when, when they awaken the mummy in the tomb and kind of there's some horror elements there and people are getting their noses and or their tongues and eyes pulled out and stuff like that. It, it, it's very effective, I think. Um, and kind of tying in the, the Christian mythology, the, the, the plagues and stuff is a fun little bit to kind of stretch out this plot. I mean, this is pretty strongly based off the 32 mummy. I mean, we've got Emotep returning and all that stuff, which is central to that plot. Um, but it only runs about 70 minutes. So we, we pulled it in about another 30 here. And I think bringing in some of those plagues, bringing in some bigger set pieces, um, it's really a, a moment where taking, you know, we see this a lot now where Disney's adapting their shorter works from the 60s and 70s or 70-minute movies. They're inflating them to two hours, and you can tell that they're just inflating them for no reason other than to get to this point of we have to have a two-hour movie. We yep. have to have an hour and 45. And, and this feels more natural in mm-hmm. its inflation in, in that regard. Um, I think it all comes together very well. I think it knows exactly what it's about and how it's going about it. I think everybody is on the same page, the actors, director, writers, everyone. Um, and it comes together in a very fun, very engaging, very easy to watch, good time of a movie. 
Uh, I remember watching this. I, I think I saw it in theaters in 99. And I remember so, you know, like it was yesterday, you know, the the big moment in the sandstorm and the face comes out of the sand, which was so cool to me back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the drunk pilot. I mean, those those bits all harken back to the 30s. Those those kind of types, the way they're played, all of it feels like a movie out of time. And I think it nails all of that. And so I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm glad we got to rewatch it. I'm glad it's held up so well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of The Mummy. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, Dalton, do you like The Mummy? I do. I like it quite a bit. As Arthur was, was talking, I, I was wondering, he, he, you're right. All of these characters are so good. And it, it's hard to not wonder how much of that is on the page and how much of that is just uh, Jonathan Hanna. I looked it up. It's Hanna's the last name. Uh, Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. How much is that just them being good actors? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of it yeah. is they bring a lot of depth to these characters. And I I think that's a huge part of what makes it work is we don't have to spend a lot of time telling you who these people are because the actors are so well cast that they are constantly showing you who these characters are. And I I think that is a a huge credit to the cast. Um, I I don't know how much credit I want to give the director, uh, Steve Sommers, who has one of the weirdest careers. He's very much a director for hire. I mean, he's just a journeyman. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, he hasn't had a, uh, a theatrically released film since uh, 20, uh, 2009's G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. Uh, he did, oh, I saw that. Uh, he did Odd Thomas with uh, Anton Yelkin in 2013, but I don't know that that had a big release. I've always seen it streaming, but I don't remember it hitting theaters. I do know. I don't I've either. seen it on Netflix a whole lot, though. But, he, I mean, he was really on the, the cusp of Universal's first attempt to go back to their uh their well of monsters from the 30s i mean obviously the the much fabled and probably going to be talked about later this episode dark universe that almost happened uh uh, with uh, tom cruise's the mummy fun fact tom cruise in contention for the brendan fraser role uh in the first go around of this uh but sommers did the mummy the mummy returns and then uh van helsing in 04 which we will definitely be doing someday on this show because that movie is insane it is truly bananas uh, but yeah, prior to this, he had done Deep Rising. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember that movie. Uh, the Jungle Book from 94, The Adventures of Huck Finn in 93, and then a, a Catch Me If You Can in 89, which is you know nothing to do with uh, the film starring uh, DiCaprio. So just a weird career that it, it's so strange. You know, We talk a lot about uh, directors coming up from the indies, getting swept up into the Marvel machine or the DC machine. Um, but it's rare to see a filmmaker's career start in studios anymore. And, uh, again, I don't know how much of a studio jam, uh, catch me if you can was, but all those other films are mid-level studio features. Mm -hmm. Even the mummy, which is quite a bit bigger is still kind of in line with his career, but almost it, the proving grounds for big tentpole movies are just different. You, we used to see directors, uh, cut their teeth. Uh, on, on these mid projects, but studios don't make mid project, mid level projects anymore. Uh, so instead of having this closed loop of uh, white guys being PAs for other white guys, and then eventually they get their own chops, uh, Hollywood just goes to indie directors now. You know, kind of like they did in the seventies. It's kind of it, it's funny how uh, cycles repeat themselves in terms of uh, the way art gets made. But <clears throat> that's neither here nor there. We'll get there in analysis probably. It's just interesting to me to look at this director's career because. This film, much like his career, isn't something we get anymore. Uh, again, they tried to do this last year or two years ago with The Mummy starring Tom Cruise, and they whiffed it. I haven't seen that film, but just based nope. on the marketing and the trailers, 
they seem to not understand what a modern audience would get out of these monster movies. Uh, and I think what this film gets right is to make them family-friendly horror films, which is not something you get very often. We just don't make very many of those. Uh, but by having these horror elements in the guise of a you know four-quadrant appeal action comedy, I think it really works very well. Uh, the iconography is very... It just does a really great job of evoking... I think the 30s and 40s Universal Monsters, while being its own thing, I think the design of Imhotep the Mummy is incredible. Uh, the CGI is not always great, but when he the when they, that mummy first pops out of its sarcophagus with half its head caved in and it's like a practical, gross effect, it's really, really affecting. Uh, having Imhotep be played by a white South African is less affecting, uh, but, you know, that's not that surprising. It's a film from 1999. You, Look, you knew what you were paying for. You knew what you came to see. You came to see a uh, a Dutch guy in brown face. That's that's what it is. Uh, hey, studios, I see what you did there. You went out of your way to cast a white guy and still be able to say he's African. Pretty fucked up. Again, uh, very endemic of the time. Uh, you would cut to just a few decade and a half later. You've got Sofia Batella, who is uh, of Algerian descent, so slightly less gross. I would say a lot less gross. Uh, and honestly, the most interesting thing about that Mummy reboot is having Sophia Battelle be the villain, which is the only reason I've ever almost watched it. Uh, but again, to focus on the things that do work here, as Arthur's mentioned, it is a film out of time in a way that's really satisfying. I mean, Brent Fraser just, wa- Fraser just walks into this film a fully formed movie star, having done stuff like Dudley Do-Right, George of the Jungle, and Encino Man, and Airheads, uh, and says, surprise, big strapping comedians make incredibly good leading men see chris pratt i mean that's mm-hmm. hollywood uh sometimes will find a remember that comedians have a lot of pathos i think and i think Brendan fraser shows that and uh we'll, we'll talk more about him and his career and what makes him an interesting actor later on in the show but uh i, I think uh, him and rachel vice's careers are very interesting when you look at uh, them because this is the film that put both of them in the category of superstardom, and they both went very different directions with their careers. So it's, I think it's interesting in that regard. Uh, but yeah, just a great pace, Arthur, as you said. Uh, a a whip-cracking good time. I liked it. Uh, what, what, what else is there to say? Dustin, what do you think about this movie? Um, I like it, too. and I like it because... It, I mean, I, as we're going to discuss later, we start talking about the sort of narrative formal aspects. It is very paint-by-numbers, yeah. and we're going to unpack what paint-by-numbers means uh, when that sort of critical uh, phrase is being used a little bit, I think. But it, it, everything is sort of expected. You know, as soon as they show up, you know, are they going to read? You never read the Egyptian, the Latin, the Sumerian. You never, ever do that. Don't do it. If you do, obviously you call the thing. Obviously, the group of guys that are going to be the ones that read it, they're going to be the group of people, the the, the four teenagers of a slash movie that are going to get slowly picked off by the monster. Obviously, the one with glasses is going to pull a Vilma Scooby-Doo thing and have to go find the glasses. I mean, you know, those things. Benny's obviously going to end up being the stooge of the mummy. Obviously, Brandon Fraser and Rachel Weisz are going to fall in love. All of, you know what's going to happen. You know exactly how it's going to go down. When uh, even when you get the thirties, uh, excuse me, the, the the early World War One uh, last left pilot there from Egypt who wants to go down in the you know in the blaze of glory, he goes down in a blaze of glory like you're you're supposed to do. 
ever there's nothing unexpected there's nothing unpredictable about this movie at all except the performances have so much charisma yeah and that's what makes it fun it's got good it, it's well paced in terms of its action beats and so it's able to mix up its action and exposition in a way that doesn't get burdensome on either end and that's useful and then the actors themselves just crush it at being fun at just having a rip-roaring good time being appropriately serious when it's time to be serious and being appropriately silly and not going too far over the edge in their silliness and so they can have a moment where they're both looking at the body as a, of the uh, of the mummy Imhotep himself uh, when they first discover him and they're trying to comment on the fact that he's still decomposing and they both in time say he's still juicy right like yeah. like little bitty lines like that i don't think that's gonna work or whatever they're gonna say it's got these itty bitty little silly kind of one-liners and it works brendan fraser yells at the mummy after it roars at him mm. is a great bit mm. it's great yeah <sighs> like yeah. his sarcastic and then, Roar back. and then sort of like goofy, like I got lucky. The guy was about to kill me, but in my backswing on my sword, I accidentally knocked yeah. his head off, yeah. and then I used his head to chop it. I mean, all of that is just sort of this bumbling, silly Rube Goldberg machine of destruction that it, it works. Well, the action choreography in this film is so clean in that regard, mm -hmm. right? It just it it never much like uh, the action beats in a Jackie Chan film. It it keeps that sense of gleeful joy mm -hmm. going. It doesn't uh, become you know no one's gonna die in this film. We're just here to have well nobody that has a name and matters is gonna right. die. Right. Uh, the people that die are gonna be barely named and have one. What, that's the guy with glasses. That's the guy with two guns. Like that's yeah. oh, those that's, are the people that that's are the bad die. guy scholar. Oh, and that's you know Benny. Benny, you know, like maybe dies. I mean, I, yeah. I know there are sequels, and I understand maybe he comes back, but maybe, mm, maybe I don't not. think so. I don't know if he's in two or not. I don't I, think he is. Okay, I've, I've never seen him. I have no idea. Two's, but, we'll talk about two. We'll get there. A door seemed to have been open at least when all the doors sure. closed on Benny. Um, but anyway, yeah, it, it it's fun, and and that's what makes it so much fun. Um, is it good? I don't know about that, but. I mean, I had a good time watching it. So, I mean, what more? What does it matter? Yeah. yeah. What, do, what does that matter? So, there are our initial opinions uh, regarding this here film, The Mummy from 1999, um, starring the great Brendan Fraser. 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 Zer. Fraser. Fraser. There you go. As if I'm going to shoot you like my laser Fraser gun. beam. Yeah, you got uh, it. Fraser uh, <laughs> beam. Is it like a laser beam that Scotty. freezes you? Oh, yeah. Give me that sci-fi stuff mm, right there. Like that. Um, anyway, um, let's move on to the section of the show where we expand the syllabus. So you're teaching a course in film studies, and uh, this block can be any block of anything you ever could possibly conceive of. What books, articles, other movies, bits of media would you use in your teaching process? I ask you first, Arthur. What do you say? I need to read more books. Um, I think with this, I would, uh, I think going back to the universal stuff, I think that initial cycle is very key mm -hmm. to this movie and kind of exploring what this movie is doing. I think you go back to that. You can go to the mummy stuff. You could even look at it. Abbott and Costello's The Mummy, uh, yes. Meet the Mummy, which has one of my favorite uh, Abbott and Costello bits in it, I think. Um, but those, that era is, is just so unique. It's so special. And, and the mummy, I've never been a big fan of the 1932 version of the mummy but i think it's kind of central to exploring what's going on it's here. good it's okay yeah. i mean it's carlo it's lesser carlo yeah. it's not like the frankenstein performance yeah so it's uh, all right I, yeah it's pretty middling to me especially in comparison like the wolfman regardless uh, i i do think you kind of have to go back there to kind of explore the origins of what they're doing here because it is such a throwback and um i don't know if i want to go into the the 2017 version now or later um let's save it okay i want to 
Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> well, I'll save that for later in the show. I'm not going to edit any I, of this out. Don't I, worry. I whispered something. I'm too lazy to edit anymore. Um, hey, unless Justin, I need to. I, I think they still heard you. I don't, do you think so? I think they might have. Probably because you've got a microphone in front of your face, you dipshit. Are they still listening? Yeah, probably. Hey, Arthur, why don't you keep going? I see dead people. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the ASMR portion of the show. We hope you enjoyed it. Cool. Um, so other than that, the other big thing I would, I would go with, um, is, is for more Fraser. Um, he has a great guest run on Scrubs. Yeah, he does. Um, just full of um, emotional beats that are so, so well played on that show. One of the, one of the great episodes, probably top five episodes of Scrubs, uh, features, features Brendan Fraser performance. And, uh, it's beautiful and, and incredible and shows, Kind of his range outside of, I mean, yeah, he's kind of a jokester and, and stuff, but he's got a lot more heart and emotion that he he can show. He should have picked up a guest star, Amy Man. It's that good. Yeah, it, it's incredible. If you haven't ever seen Scrubs, I think it's a great show. But pick out the episodes where Fraser appears, um, because top top notch storytelling, I, th- I think, and, and the way the uh, one of his later episodes is structured as just brilliant script writing. Um, so those those would be my picks. I think you go back to the Universal stuff, you look at that. And then just pick out some of the other stuff that he's maybe not as well known for, and, and that Scrubs performance is, is 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 it's beautiful. Excellent, excellent. I like that very much. So Dalton, you're teaching a class, mm-hmm. and you're going to be using this movie as your primary cinematic text. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it the thing you're teaching, and uh, what stuff are you using to augment? Well, I think we're just going to talk about. Uh, I think we use the Mummy to show how it is still kind of endemic of 1999. Uh, that it, even this genre film is a big part of a seat change in uh, studio filmmaking. Uh, because as you were talking, Arthur, uh, about uh, uh, the ways... And actually, both of you have said things that have made me think about this. I can't stop thinking about the MCU in regard to this film. And I don't mean the interconnected universe stuff, uh, although I think that's part of it. I, I think uh, it makes perfect sense that Universal was like, oh, duh, we should do a monster universe. It makes sense. They already did one. They were the first ones to kind of do something like that back in the thirties. Uh, but I, I think the way that this film is kind of a breezy popcorny action uh, comedy is really sets the tone for the next 20 years of blockbusters. I think it really does. And I think you can see a lot of the DNA of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, And again, we're going to be talking about the MCU all the time on this show because it has changed good trash for better and worse. Uh, I I think it is following the same roadmap as most of the good, good trash before it. And for that reason, I I think that's why it keeps coming up in conversation because there's so many films that have laid the groundwork just in terms of making a breezy family film. Um, so I think that's super important, especially. Oh, go ahead, Arthur. Well, I was just gonna say, there's a, she has uh, Rachel Vice has that nod. She says, you know, this is just hokum. It's comic books, and and I think that's such a fascinating line. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That that was kind of what started me thinking yeah, about it. And I, I thought was, about that too. I was gonna put that to bed, but you've said so many things uh, that remind me of uh, Captain America: the the First Avenger, uh, start, directed by Joe Johnson, which is very heavily influenced by his Rocketeer movie, which yeah. is heavily influenced by serials of the 30s, yeah. much like this film is is influenced by serials of the 30s. Yeah, the Rocketeer is another one that has that same. I mean, just like the Mummy, I think it has that same feel of of being a movie out of time, and even First Avenger. Yeah, and that, that's why I say we're going to use those films to kind of talk about uh, the Mummy and the MCU and we're going to use Captain America the First Avenger do because honestly I think even more than Iron Man it's kind of the 
best of those early Marvel movies. I, I think it really lands hard, and part of what makes it work is mastery of tone, which I think The Mummy does definitely have. Uh, next up, as Arthur has mentioned, uh, we, we need to talk about Brendan Fraser as a performer uh, and his career. What happened to him? Uh, so I'm going to direct you to Whatever Happened to Brendan Fraser by Zach Barron from uh, February 22nd, 2018. It was a profile uh, for GQ. Uh, and it is one of the best actor interviews I have ever read. Uh, I'm going to read you a little piece of it. Uh, it's uh, a quote. Uh, it's a portion that includes a quote from Fraser that uh, I think really kind of illuminates a lot about his character. So uh, from the article, he laughs a small, sad laugh. This is going to really probably be a little saccharine for you, Fraser warns. But I felt like the horse from Animal Farm, whose job it was to work and work and work. Orwell wrote a character who was, I think, the proletariat. He worked for the good of the whole. He didn't ask questions. He didn't make trouble until it killed him. I don't know if I've been sent to the glue factory, but I felt like I've had to rebuild shit that I've built that got knocked down and do it again for the good of everyone, whether it hurts you or not. So it's just a whole piece about Fraser seeing himself and the arc of his career and knowing that he was meat for Hollywood and seeing how this industry has kind of abused him and how he let it abuse him and turn him into a version of himself that he didn't even really want to be. Uh, and he, he broke his body. I mean, uh, in the article, you learn that uh, he had several, several serious injuries from doing a lot of his own stunt work over the course of these action movies that he did in the late 90s and early 2000s, the two Mummy movies, uh, even the Looney Tunes movie, like just a lot of stunt-heavy work. And even though he did have stunt doubles, he still was trying to do as much as he could. And you get hurt that way. I mean, it's like being an athlete uh, you're getting kind of knocked around uh, and it's not always con as controlled as you want it to be uh he also had some uh, he had an, uh, a sexual assault happen to him uh at the hands of somebody with a lot of power in hollywood so it just kind of charts how this industry abuses people's bodies and abuses their their own self-worth and uh, it, fraser's just an incredible guy with a lot of resiliency and uh, uh you it's an article that makes you really feel for him and I think is great because he was such a huge star. He was ubiquitous in the late 90s. Uh, so I think I'm going to say Arthur's kind of talked a little bit about other performances from him. I think you should go uh, put on the syllabus a lot of his early work, uh, Blast from the Past and See No Man, Airheads, uh, even Monkey Bone, which is after The Mummy, but is still kind of more in line with those earlier movies he was doing. Uh, just, just show his work as a comedian and show how being a big six foot tall kind of built handsome guy took him from being a comedy actor to an action actor and how that kind of informed his career and i've also heard uh arthur uh and i were both recommended doom patrol the dc universe series it's only on their streaming service because he's in it as a robot man uh but our, our friend of the show cameron brewer was telling arthur and i that it's, it's a really great show but it's also a really great fraser performance so i think these are all all things that are kind of important to unpacking this film and unpacking uh who Brendan Fraser is, and of course we've got to talk about Rachel Weisz, and you've got to watch last year's The Favorite, where she is incredible, and it's so fun to watch her in that film, and then I watch that because I finally caught up with The Favorite maybe two days ago, so I watched It and the Mummy just a few days apart, and it's really, really satisfying to get to watch that career arc for Rachel Weisz, uh, and it's just interesting the ways that she has continued to navigate a really shitty industry, um, and honestly, I would love to read a profile on her, uh, just like I read on Brendan Fraser. Like, what what is it like to go from being a, a stage actor working in the UK TV circuits to go to being a big blockbuster star overnight? And how do you stay true to what kind of career you want to have? And I think Rachel Weisz did a great job of doing that. So that is your syllabus. It, it's more 
out there and meta. It's not so much analyzing film so much as it is analyzing the culture around film. Excellent, excellent. I like that very, very much. Um, I think if I was using this movie, I'm th- I think a lot about just the prevalence of CGI in it. The 90s mm. was that moment of that rise where we were seeing more and more of it. And there were, I'm, I, you know, I'm not as interested in first. You know, sometimes film historians sort of lose their minds about what was the first instance of this or the greatest reliance on that or whatever. This is a good example of a early reliance on heavy CGI in a horror film, which has not been a thing that was going on you know, in the immediate sort of lead up and begins to change the game thereafter. And so I think what I would do is I would take an approach of technological shifts for cinema in general and how they are applied to genre film in specific. And so uh, the text I might have a student read is uh, Robert Spadani's Uncanny Bodies. It's a book I've mentioned before on the show, which is all about the uh, coming of sound in the late 20s. And so those 1931 first universal horror films are all about that sort of use of this new, uh, again, sort of uh, exhibition technology of using sound. And so the creaking doors and the howling wolves and those kinds of things that are now sort of tropes of the film, um, the horror film genre, are really uh, in, in part just reliance upon the sort of newly developed bit of technology uh, that's going on. Uh, then uh, we may or may not watch any film from that. I mean, you, t- you know... Five out of six and pick them. I really don't care as far as which universal film you want to use there. Um, moving on into, uh, I think, the transition to sort of the overwhelming sort of uh, standard within Hollywood of color film. Color film's going on. I mean, Wizard of Oz is a 1939 movie. So, and it's the same year. Gone with the Wind is that year as well, I think. It uh, is, yeah. uh, So, I mean, we've got color film happening really, really early on. But overwhelmingly, film cinema itself, because of costs of production, costs of the stock itself, Cost of development, all that. Uh, the the sort of standard for that stuff doesn't happen. So I'm going to go up to 1957 and uh, Hammer's first horror soiree, which is The Curse of Frankenstein. Again, with Peter Cushing and uh, Christopher Lee as the uh, as the Frankenstein's monster and Cushing himself as uh, Victor Frankenstein. And use that and that Kensington gore and the use of color, that sort of move into realism. Clips would probably be used uh, from just about a decade later. Roger Corman's uh, sort of American Pictures International uh, Poe trilogy uh, with Vincent Price might be something very useful to sort of use alongside this. And I would sort of shape the use of this movie alongside these sort of technological developments, color, so this is how we're going to tell the stories. It's going to be all about the costuming if you're doing Hammer. It's going to be all about the sort of gore effects if you're doing those things. Uh, It's all about sound in the 30s. And the CGI move that we see here I think is almost a semi-failed. Now we've got your Van Helsings and we've got your Underworlds, which are very, very sort of CGI heavy. But it turns out like the fan base in horror films really, really turns turned back quickly mm-hmm. against CGI. You use CGI to show that your horror movie is not that scary. Right. You use CGI to make it an action horror movie or, or horror comedy, mm-hmm. I, I think, because it allows more distance. I think the the icky, uh, synthetic latex and, and uh, all of these gooey, tactile things you get from a horror movie, I think that's what couches you in real fear, right? Is that it's still a little closer because your eye can see it. It it happened in camera. Right. And so what we would then do is talk about that sort of practical versus CG effects specifically with regard to how that does in horror. And I think uh, we'd use some excerpts from the magazine Fangoria, which is sort of all about the sort of horror effects mm-hmm. and how those things are put together and uh, have that sort of shape our conversation over that particular little block 
of the course if I were doing it. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got a bit longer. I want to come in and be a guest professor in Dustin's course now because I think you got to talk about 98's Blade, right? Oh, yeah, good call. Great use of horror CGI, or a great uh, example of it, I should say. And again, I think it kind of again connects that point of well, it's an action horror movie. It's right. not a straight horror movie. Well, and with Del Toro, he does a great job of blending practical effects with yeah. those as well. Well, that's yeah, Blade Two and like O Two or O Three. Mm-hmm. I think shows that's where it's better. And I think yeah. when the Mummy is strong, it's when it's blending practical and CGI. Yeah. So that's the conversation that we're we're having there, uh, and that's how your syllabus gets longer, dear listener. But I think now, as you can already tell, it is definitely time to get down to business. It's business. And that business is, as always, analysis. I'm so excited to be talking about all this stuff. And I don't know where to begin, but let's talk a little bit more about Fraser's journey. Fraser. Uh, Fraser. I'm never going to get it right. I have. This, You'll just keep trying. I'm just, yeah. Hey, Dustin. He's going to ask. He's a person. He is. He's a person whose name he, I can't pronounce. He deserves to have it said correctly. Th- th- there are, Says Mr. Beefcake walked over here. I he know, just wants right? to ogle his body. Yeah, yeah. Damn, you, you really you, got me there. You objectifying monster. There's a really fun uh, bit in that GQ article where he talks about the experience of watching George in the Jungle where he's running around in a loincloth through the whole movie, and uh, he has an interesting perspective on that. Oh, yeah? What is that perspective? Uh, I look like a steak, I think is uh, <laughs> paraphrasing what he says. <laughs> Something to that effect. That is funny. And I mean, that he's is a funny of, guy. It, it is that story of the Hollywood machine about being the next thing, the it thing. Um, Larry May's uh, Picture Personas book kind of comes to mind a little bit there about this sort of, you construct this particular kind of on-screen persona and then that's how you get pigeonholed into certain kinds of roles which is bad but it's also good because if it is a you know sort of archetype that is popular you get plenty of work mm-hmm. right and uh if you get sick of playing that game then suddenly it's icky well an addendum to that gq article is um the hollywood reporter uh piece that just came out uh, about chris evans and i, I think a similarly it's a guy who has been put on a similar career trajectory as Brendan Fraser, but because he ended up in the biggest franchise of all time, uh, his career has had more legs. But I think you see a similar sadness and a similar sense of the world perceives me to be a certain kind of person because of this character archetype that I'm playing. And unlike Fraser, who's playing this archetype in different roles in different films, Chris Evans is playing this archetype in the same role in a lot of different films. So uh, it's interesting to see how the Hollywood machine is refined its process and mcdonald mcdonald'sified its process in a kind of shitty way um and to see these two guys both talking about because we spent a lot of time talking about the abuse and um neglect and outright um harassment of the female ingenue a lot in hollywood but the male ingenue we don't talk about as much and again we shouldn't but i think if ever we're going to talk about it fraser's career is a good place it's a good to place talk to, about i mean any type of exploitation is worthy of being brought to light for sure and, and this is an opportunity to do just that and uh, go ahead well as you're saying i mean you, you go back in the you know, 30s or whatever mickey rooney's a kid i mean the way that mgm exploited their mm-hmm. children uh, male and female you know i think it's always been systemic and but i i i think the you know the thing is we don't need to talk about it. But also, I don't know that those stories come to light as often when it's male-centric. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot more, I don't know. Shame. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Fraser yeah. talks about it in his article. Terry Crews has talked a lot about it. Um, when when these abuses happen, they're because of the nature of our gender roles in society. And one out of eight men, uh, you know, it's which is half the stat for women. Uh, but that's still a lot. That's and a that's, lot. That's still... Too much. Uh, yeah, it's too much. And we need to talk about it. 
Yeah. And uh, again, I think uh, kudos to Fraser and Cruz for uh, being brave enough. Uh, and again, I, I know that there, there are times when uh, survivors don't don't like words like brave getting thrown around. So I I, I do kind of bristle my own use of that word. But it, it's hard, man. And uh, I, I can't imagine. I don't know that I would have the personal uh, strength to do the same. So it's it's good to see uh, men out there saying, you know what, I see these these women that I've worked with and that I admire uh, doing their part. So and that Fraser talked about that in that profile, being like, you know, as uh, he didn't talk, he talked about it kind of quietly in the industry uh, because that's how it was handled in O two. Uh, but in this article, he talks about like watching all these actresses that he admires as admires us and that he admires and uh has worked with um so that was it was really interesting to read and yeah here's here's to you for talking out guys yeah absolutely and i mean there is a real sort of you know um human collateral in the sort of making a film mm. and uh, it doesn't have to be that way i mean it certainly is not required but it is a thing that goes on and on and it is important to shine a light on it not not only in terms of analysis when a film doesn't deal directly with it but also to sort of bring to mind other films that do things like that uh, the conversations of mulholland drive or sunset boulevard you know are definitely uh, still conversations that we need to keep having uh, as to what hollywood sort of forces you to become and how that sort of can become a poisonous atmosphere. And that poisonous atmosphere is not just to sort of the lead of the build kind of talent also. We're talking about grips and sound guys mm -hmm. and carpenters and painters. Um, this stuff is going on as well where um, these these uh, these women and men of you know both genders are, are are beyond the binary are suffering in ways because they've got to work. And it is such a um, What's the word I'm looking for? Precarious. Uh, it's such mm. a it, it's such a insecure employment market. Yeah. Well, the, the I mean the big danger is I'm 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 replaceable, right? Yeah. I mean for the capitalist studio, I mean, yeah, I'm selling movies on this guy, but I could replace him in a you're, week. You're I could build somebody else just yeah. as quickly with somebody else. I mean, it's it's not that hard of a thing. I mean, you, I mean that's the big thing. Studio area. I mean, uh, you got one hot blonde, and oh, next week, you know, she's hard to work with. She's asking too much money. We'll just bring in the next yeah. blonde woman we find. And I think that that mentality is still there. I could, you know, we see this in the Dark Knight trilogy. We re recast uh, Katie Holmes' character. We see it in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We recast Terrence Howard. I mean, people are disposable as far as studios are concerned because they can sell off the franchise now specifically. I mean, Marvel doesn't need an actor. No. At this point, they can cast anybody they want, bring in any director they want, and it's going to sell because of the Marvel machine. And it's it's interesting that that consolidation of power is different than what we normally get because it used to be or not used to be but for a while now it's been the only non-replaceable person is the director. Uh, and that's why you know the older I get the more time I spend thinking about film the more I uh, veer away from uh, auteur theory because I think it builds up uh, this culture that allows these kinds of abuses that we've been talking about, right? Uh, hey Kubrick, hey Fincher, guys if you got to shoot it 300 times, you don't fucking know what you wanted the shot to look like the first time. And you're just abusing your actors to make it look like you're a genius. Storyboard it. Have have rehearsals. Have you, a plan. You don't need to abuse people. That or or like live in that moment where you love the sort of you know um, again the uh, the the was it the the oh gosh there's a word for a kind of the chance encounter in the surrealist movement. Yeah. If you love the chance encounter, then great. Take take hold of the chance encounter and let it and let it just sort of evolve as it does. The film's bigger than you. But then go away. Now you might want to take a few takes to see what that chance encounter. Get might your coverage. Look like, Get your coverage. You know, and and give opportunities like okay, we'll just do something different. We'll try it this way. Yeah. yeah. Just, 
you know? don't um, make Shelley Duvall do 200 mm. takes. Don't literally yeah. try to drive her insane. To break her yeah. and get the reaction you want. Yeah. yeah. Trust your actors. But I yeah. could definitely see someone say, okay, you're the, you know, you're the gangster and you're telling the person how you're going to torture him. Do it like you love it. Now do it like you're reading the items on the menu. Like, okay, those are two different takes, and let's yeah. just see which is more fun. That's or, fun. Yeah. or yeah. tell me what you think the character would be doing sure. here. Uh, but again, the flip side of this, right, if we get to a point where the director is interchangeable too, that's good because now every, there's some more uh, there's more of a democratic affair on set, but then the set is still beholden to the studio execs and the producers who have submitted themselves as not interchangeable because Kevin Feige's the guy, right? Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I mean, on, on a grand studio level, I think we are at that point. We are. Yeah, we're uh, at the Val yeah. Luton level now. Yeah, you're yeah. Kathleen Kennedy's, you're Kevin Feige's. I mean, again, Disney is leading the path on this. Yeah. But you look at the structure of the way uh, of, like, the Disney franchises, the, of the Pixar's and the Star Wars's and the Marvel's, hey, guys, that's just a franchise. That's all that is. You know, like we have for fast food restaurants. Yeah. You yeah. can count on the product to come out consistently and uh, tickle the same salt needs and the same fat needs and the same sweet needs. Uh, except instead of brain or tongues, it's eyeballs, right? So, yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about what Universal keeps trying to do here, because we've been talking about Marvel for a while now. Yeah. And uh, this was an attempt, and this movie was very successful and spawned off its own little franchise. The Mummy became a franchise, and then spawned a secondary franchise yes, of Scorpion King direct to video. Yeah. Right. Man. I mean, it's a huge sprawling franchise. It did some things. It was quite successful, and and you know, and and what that part of what that did, alongside with the Marvel Cinematic Universe's success, was what inspired Universal to sort of try to do this dark universe thing that they had done once before, about a hundred years ago. And but here is the thing, and I think this is what makes our moment sort of unique in terms of what's happening, because franchises have existed forever. That's, yeah. that's I mean, as, yeah. as long as we've had had movies at all, someone made another one like that. We had it franchises could, when we had books, right? Yeah, we're going to continue the story. What's next, right? The the no, those Odyssey, are series. The Odyssey is a sequel to the Iliad. We have always had franchises. Yeah, yeah. it's it's yeah, totally a thing. So what we do now then is um, these things sort of happen naturally. It was, it was making these horror stories, right? Because we're making genre movies, and they themselves became their own cycle in the 1930s of the classic Universal monsters. And uh, Hammer sort of reinvents and redoes that same sort of cycle with individual. These are our. Frankenstein movies, which spawn six films. These are Dracula movies, which spawn, what, eight movies. These are, you know, just, again, the sort of hammer cycle in general. Uh, Roger Corman does his post cycle. Those things occur. Now cut to 2012, and you're a Universal exec, and The Avengers has just come out. And so now you want to do this sort of multi-movie connected Again, the, the, basically the MCU thing. But what happens with all the other cycles, like all other cycles in film, they didn't know it was happening until after it had happened. Yeah. The 30s monster movies were sort of all slated together to be made. They just made them, and then they were successful, and then they made more. And then they did crossovers. And then those great detective films that later became named film noir, they were just being made, and they were made in a certain way, and they did well, and so they made more. Now we've got a moment where the, this thing happened with comic book heroes, another franchise. So we're going to make that, but we're going to do it on purpose. Yeah. And we're going to organize from the outset that this is going to be the thing that happens and force it. And that, I think that's why it fails. And it's not just universe. I mean – Every studio, I mean, there's a Hanna-Barbera cinematic universe in the works. There's the King of Monsters cinematic universe with Godzilla. Fast and the Furious. There's, well, yeah, I guess they now with Charles and Shaw. Yeah. yeah. I don't, 
It's different, but so, it's similar. Similar. Well, and I think that the big sticker here, right, is that for the MCU, a lot of this shit happened behind closed doors. They mm-hmm. didn't want the public to know because if they, they knew if they failed, you they could scrap and do something else. And do something else. But if you fail and everybody knows what your plan was, hi, looking at you, Universal and Warner Brothers, uh, it's a huge... You become the laughing stock of the entire industry. Yeah. Uh, and this is an industry where perception is everything. I mean, the whole... I mean, Marvel caught lightning in a bottle to say, hey, we want to do this thing. Hey, let's put a nod to the Avengers with Samuel Jackson at the end of the movie at the after the credits. No one's going to watch it anyway. It's after the credits, right? And if nothing happens, nothing happens. Right? Yeah. And then, okay, people bit... And they bit hard on Iron Man. Let's try it again. Well, they they had the smart thing of they were going to get two movies out in the same year. Yeah. I think that's the magic. And I think that's where uh, Tom Cruise's The Mummy fails. Like, you shouldn't, you don't shoehorn in Russell Crowe in here and keep making Jekyll and Hyde references. Maybe you reference a Dr. Jekyll and you leave, or a Dr. Hyde and you leave it at that and then you have that movie drop five months later, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't, you, you don't, you don't force it. Yeah. Well, everyone's going to laugh at you. And your Luke Evans Dracula Untold is supposed to be part of it. Which as is well. a really like, so, well, that's their soft launch, right? Mm-hmm. That's They do that one before they announce well, what's going on. I was reading, I don't think they actually considered that one canon. Oh, they weren't going to fold that in? They weren't. Uh, really? Okay, yeah. good to know. I think they had initially thought they were, but I think after the fact, they were like, no, we'll start with the mummy. And that was going to be the, the entry point into this dark. Un- I mean, they have a tag on the movie. I, I sent you guys the screenshot. Of, I was That's watching right, the mummy. You did. Mm-hmm. There's a dark universe tag at the beginning of the film. <sighs> you right? idiots. I mean, they're from the get go. I mean, just like Warner Brothers, they're trying to capitalize on this thing, and it's not a thing you can just put together and run. Like people aren't going to come crawling out of the woodworks to see movies based on properties from a hundred years ago, nearly. Yeah. Right. I, I, I think that's the thing. I mean, you want to make a quick buck, and yeah, Marvel's doing great, but. Marvel put in a lot of work and built a lot of equity before they tried to do this. I mean, mm-hmm. the Avengers was a big deal, but to try to build this whole cinematic universe spanning galaxies and yeah, supernatural, mystical worlds. You're talking four years of films being released and another like four, three and a half, four years on top of that, I think, in pre-production. I think like yeah. 05, 06 is when Marvel uh, first Just starts planning. getting butts and seats to start, you know, yeah, putting pen to paper. So it's it's a lot of work that went into it. And the the dark the funny thing about and it is the MCU influence. I mean, the twenty seventeen The Mummy is very much I mean, it's set present day and you've got Tom Cruise. I mean, kudos, you get Tom Cruise because he's a draw, yes. But the the problem is that they're trying to make it a Marvel film, right? You have to have these huge techie set pieces, action things, you have to have shadowy organizations. I mean very much a carbon copy following in that footprint, but that's that's not the the draw of of the Marvel films. I mean, I mean, yeah, your interconnected monster story is penny dreadful. Yeah, that's what you do exactly. Is, is something like, and you can contemporarily set that. Well, and yeah, I think if you fine, if you but... want to contemporary set it, you make that the the credit stinger at the end of like the second movie. I think the only way that a dark universe works successfully is if you try to do '30s period pieces where you do yes, tonal remakes of the originals mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, and you don't make it a two hundred million dollar movie. You make it a fifty million dollar movie. You don't go, don't fucking bet the house on the first time you do it. I mean. You go back and look at the budgets and salary figures on the first phase of Marvel movies. Chris Evans got three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. We, and they're not that big budget of films. No, they're like they're like eighty to one hundred and forty production plus. You know, uh, 
their their ad budgets, but yeah. they ain't got that Disney money yet. They're mm-hmm. they're smaller productions. And they didn't do huge numbers. Cap and Thor. I mean, compared they to did Iron okay. Man, yeah, I mean, they made profits. They were you know you could definitely say we'll make a sequel. Yeah, yeah but which I is mean, what you want to shoot for. It's like yeah. make a movie that's good enough that makes that's a sequel. Profitable. Well, you bet. That's what Ninety Nine's Mummy did. Right, the Mummy. Yeah. I mean, domestically doubled its budget, and that's a success. And you know, worldwide, it brought in another two or three hundred million, I think. So, I mean, it's that's what you're aiming for. Yeah. And then I think that if that if 1999's The Mummy is your kickoff point, then I think you're in the then whole you different do, game. I think you can do a dark universe at that point. Yes. Well, I think I, you're there. I think that's what circles us back because again, Arthur, you'd be able to speak better to this than Dustin or I because we've only seen trailers. But it seems like they're going for this like. PG fifteen like we're edgy kind of thing. Def- I, okay, look. Whereas ninety nine's the mummy is is much more in that Marvel tone of like action comedy. Look, is Anoxinamore very sexy in her body paint? Yes, but in twenty seventeen's the mummy, you got full Sophia Botella doing side boob, full nudity for basically the whole movie. Yeah, I mean, I mean, open in the opening. I mean, you see close up side boob and no, you know, butts out and. and it's. I mean, who's the movie for? Yeah, and and couple that with it's trying to do this, capture this tone of the '99 Mummy. I mean, it's very much trying to put in these kind of comic beats. Really, there's a moment where she's trying to kill Tom Cruise and he's getting tickled and he's laughing. Right. I mean, it's That's it's really trying funny. to pull. It, it doesn't work though. I mean, it should <sighs> That's be too bad, but it doesn't work. I mean, if that had happened in Brendan Fraser's The Mummy, yeah, it works mm-hmm. because yeah. that's. Totally in line with what that movie's doing. Well, and Tom Cruise is just miscast. He's I mean, just—he's too yeah, self-serious. He's Tom Cruise. He's Tom Cruise. However, I will say we this. know who he is. This movie is so meta because it is the whole story is that she is trying to endue a man to make him a god amongst men, which is the most Tom Cruise wow. move considering the Scientology background. Wow. Like. Wow. I don't. Mm. I, I we should discuss it someday. Just there's a whole meta thing there. Sounds with like Tom we're gonna Cruise. have to get to that movie. Yeah. yeah. Mm, uh, but yeah. I mean, everything that 99's The Mummy does right, 2017 gets wrong. Mm. Over relying on digital in this type of movie in 20, 2017, right? I mean, uh, there's there's one character who becomes the kind of it's it's weird because he kind of becomes the the Benny Renfield type thing, mm-hmm. but he's also doing the 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 Victor uh, what's his name in Pet Cemetery. Oh, the Victor. Uh, oh, uh, the um, uh, uh, what's his name? Gosh, uh, Pascal. Oh, Pascal. Pascal. Right. Yeah. He's uh, he's he's this ghost appearing to Tom Cruise oh to God. warn him, <laughs> and he looks like a zombie. Oh my God! But it's all digitally altered. No. Right. So it's very bad CG. Instead of using a prosthetic to make him look undead, it's very digital. And the mm. same with Sofia Batella when she's mummified. And she's a mummy monster walking the streets. It's all digital. And I can forgive 99 for doing that because we hey, we're going to play in CG. Yeah. In 2017, we know better. Yeah. And there's just, it, 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 it misfires on every level. And, it's too bad. And the whole thing, I, I kind of like Russell Crowe in this movie. That's what I've heard. I've heard he's a little fun. I, I think he's, fat Russell Crowe is very interesting mm. yeah. dynamic. Love thick Russell Crowe a lot. <laughs> um, especially in his suit. But yeah, the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing is... It's kind of fun, but it, it becomes way too much as a subplot within this film. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 it's definitely a misfire in that regard. Okay. Well, I mean, th- this sort of, again, just talks about this movie in terms of its being placement. And it, it does well as a, just a set of sequels of its own little mini franchise. And, uh, again, had there been foresight there, I think they could have pulled off the other thing. Because I don't think... 
um, you use the phrase "lightning in the bottle" with Marvel. I, I, I think there was a possibility for anybody to do this as long as they found something that was successful, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, you know, and just and then just capitalized on it appropriately, which is, I think, what Marvel did well. I think obviously the other only other option that could have pulled it off is Star Wars. Star right? Wars, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're kind of playing in that. It's not the same I, because we're still all connected. It's a solo movie. It's a Boba Fett movie. It's well, and they whiffed it and canceled. Now they've uh, canceled or delayed all their announced spinoff movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with the exception of Ryan Johnson's uh, trilogy, it's the only one they're still kind of which out is there talking really the about. first chance that we're going to be able to extend this Star Wars cinematic universe yeah. because all nine of these movies are the Skywalker Star Wars franchise, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's the only place. I think Star Wars is the only property and already established property that yep. already has been expanded in, in multiple ways through video games, through transmedia means. I, I think that's the only place where you could have put your your chips on black well, one. I think the the other difference is, right? There there it's not like there's been a bunch of monster movies over the last decade that have hit it big with audiences, right? I mean, there you're looking at a decade worth of superhero films being hits before somebody says, "Let's do it like the comic books did it on the Discovery Channel." Sorry, I, yeah, we're doing a different thing there. I had a joke going. Well, they were still doing the franchise. They've got yeah. your paranormal activities and your saws yeah. and your whatevers, you know, that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, the, you had your regular horror franchises, but there wasn't like a a known demand for monsters. It's just there was a known demand for interconnection. And you, you can't force these sorts of things. And I, again, I think that's what this 99 The Mummy gets right, is it's just doing its own thing, man. It's just having a good time. Yeah. Yeah, do we do we want to go ahead and do we have more thoughts on on the form of making movies, or we want to move on to well, some? I theory do want to stuff. talk about why it's paint by numbers. I think okay. Then th- this is theory in terms of uh, the formal theories of it. Yeah, that'll, that'll get us there because we we do talk a lot about and critics often use this phrase. You know, it's paint by numbers again. You know, the glasses guy loses his glasses. Benny ends up being a crook, and Arthur made these. A couple of great observations in the group chat, and so I want to give credit here that he said that you could really remake this as Casablanca, which I want you to say more about, or you could also remake it as Dracula with Benny as Renfield and, uh, you know, the sort of trying to recover that lost love from uh, from the Emotep's character. And it's also got bits of Bride of Frankenstein as well, sort of that revival thing. You well, know. it's got bits of... Uh Bram Stoker's Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, right? Yeah, that's the, what the I, romantic lead is tied to the villain. Yeah, and that's what I really, as I was watching it, you know, I mean, it's been a long time since I've watched either of these movies, but I, I'm familiar enough with both, especially The Mummy, to, to see this way this narrative plays out, right? We we open, we've got this cold open set centuries ago, whatever, much like Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. It opens very similar. We have the ill-fated love, the, the monster's murdered, and these time passes and we come back and we have this whole idea of the resurrected lover and, and that all plays but also the beats of bringing in benny who plays that renfield role as the henchman trying to get stuff done in the light of day. i'm here to connect the audience to the monster yes uh, and, and the way the beats all play out throughout the film i mean very much mirrors i think coppola's bram stoker's right and even you know uh 31 Dracula as well. Absolutely. Mm. And then the Casablanca thing, yeah. right? Where there, where Rick is Rick and uh, uh Evie is Elsa. Yeah. And uh Benny is Peter Lorre. Yeah. I mean, those things are also really really strongly at work there that you can do Jonathan's character as you said either Louis or um um Louis Renault. Uh, yeah. Or yeah. Ma- uh, what's his stinking name? The cowboy character. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Um can't think of it either. It's not important, though. 
Claude Rains. Claude Rains. Well, that's Renault. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or Sam. I think he could be Sam. Oh, he could be Sam. Right, well, he could be the kind of funny sidekick there. Sorry, I was back on Dracula and realized too late you guys were oh, on the cost no, block. But I, I, I'm very, I mean, I don't know if, you know, for those who aren't familiar, when they shot King Kong uh, in their off time, they actually went ahead and shot... Uh, the most dangerous game. The most dangerous game. No using the same set, same actors, same crew. Same costumes. Yeah. And so very much in my head, I'm like, well, you're doing the mummy. I mean, you've got everything here. You could have easily just done this. Like, it would be a fun experiment to say, hey, let's remake Casablanca. And that works because, yes, Casablanca, great movie all time, whatever, was nothing more than a studio, uh, you know, assembly line. Just an exotic. Thing a, that worked. It's a fluke. Story. That, yeah, I mean nobody really wanted to be there. The script was a mess. Things were getting rewritten daily while they were shooting. It shouldn't have worked. Another capturing lightning in a bottle, perfect storm of a moment. Uh, but, you know, heralding it up above anything else is a masterclass of filmmaking. I think it's a bit unfair because it was just another, it was a fluke. Yeah. You know, and and I think the the mummy to, to take those moments, because all of the beats are there, right? All mm-hmm. the pieces are there. You just take away the the mummy and you insert Nazis uh, yeah. And you make it work, and I think it easily parallel. And and part of that is because of the way it's structured and the way it's shot. I mean, the the shootout on the boat uh, when they're doing that whole thing, and obviously in a water tank, it's a very yeah, small, it's set. very clear, but it's also so fun. Yeah, uh, that whole bit, um, all the stuff in the desert uh, when they're at the campsite, when they're exploring the tomb, so many beats. The way they're shot, the way they're edited, we get a lot of wipes, you get a lot of dissolves, you get a lot of that type of. Uh, editing uh transitioning between shots um but everything about it the way it's staged the way it's structured the costuming even the character performances all feel like you just walked out of a 40s movie yeah well and i actually meant to put this in my expanding the syllabus and forgot about it but it's like raiders of the lost ark in that regard yeah uh it's very much doing a an affectation it's very much trying to capture a a different a, a movie of a bygone era i I feel, I thought about that, and Raiders to me, it feels like homage, but it's very much polished. It feel, very much yeah. has that 80s kind of George Lucas money and Spielberg money. But this feels very intentionally like you would have seen an assembly line movie that rolled out of the studio oh, in, in the 40s. Well, and, and, and so Paint by Numbers here isn't bad. Because it, it's it's a, it's a good movie, it's enjoyable and it's fun, but it is very much that. And and I, I'm trying trying to sort of help. The it listener. allows for story economy, right? right yeah. It, it allows well, the audience to quickly invest themselves because we're using iconography they recognize from other stories. I think the best guide here is if you, I mean, and that's the whole save the cat method, right? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. essentially breaks down that every four quadrant studio film, commercially, you know, filmed bit comes down to these are the 15 beats you have. You have your Enter the Void, you have your thesis stated, you have your you know, night, dark before the day, you have your whatever, your midpoint, uh, breaking it down that every kind of commercial film follows these beats. And his, his whole thing, Snyder's thing, is that uh, he was listening to essentially audio versions of the movies and he'd realize on his commute that every movie had the same structure when he was listening and he'd always hit the midpoint at a certain point and he realized that from there it was always back downhill towards the, the end of the film. And so I think that's where the... I I think paint eye numbers can be derivative, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, we talked about it with, um, I think, Italian Job where it's it's a very paint by numbers because it's just so basic. Right. Uh, but it's not necessarily a bad thing because Casablanca is paint by numbers. And it's yeah. yeah, but it's the performance is elevated. Yeah, you know, um, some of the uh, uh, cinema, 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 
cinematography choices. I could not make that word come out of my mouth just now. Those those choices are what elevated. Yeah, and so. You know, I, I guess I just wanted to sort of suss out a little bit more specifically what we mean by that, and because th- all movies are paid by numbers. There are good guys, and there are bad guys, and there's a problem, and they'll overcome it, and the guy will get the girl at the end. I mean, so in the sense, all the movies are paid yeah. by numbers. I mean, and we're not saying, you know, as critics, someone's not saying every movie needs to be like Memento, right, or Showa, or you know, something. That's- yeah, the, the thing is not messing with the uh, you know chronology or how you tell the story. The thing is. Messing with roles. Well, right? even in Memento, I mean, it's still hitting the same beats. They're just yeah, in a different, different order. I mean, not even a different order. Your awareness of where the characters mm-hmm. are in their journey is different. Yeah, but the actual beats within a rising action narrative within a film—it's pretty. It's pretty. Basic they're the same there. as any other thriller. Well, and I think what that film does well—spoiler uh, alerts for Memento—is the vil- the villain is not who you think the villain is. The good guy is not who the good guy is. Right, and I think that's where. That save the cat shit gets really tired. Is oh my god, another movie about some dude who's going to realize his inner specialness? No, Memento's about a, a movie about a guy realizing he's the bad guy, right? Uh, the Mummy at times is a movie about Brendan Fraser realizing he's not the chosen one. It's Rachel Vice. Like it, this is her movie. She is the one that makes this whole journey happen. Well, it's very much a little trouble in, or big trouble in little China. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's all about the hiring of the mercenary, right? Yeah. And I, I think the film is better for the moments where it's Rachel Vice's movie. Not that Fraser's not great in this. It's just it's different when it's Rachel right. Vice's movie. It's it's a different thing. Um, I, I think as we're we're getting out of this paint by numbers, I think one thing that we should talk about as we're again transitioning from form to theory a little bit. Let's. I, I just want to talk a little bit more about the idea of a family horror film. Yeah, because it's so I love novel. Them. There's just not that. There's not a lot of them. There's arachnophobia. There's gremlins. There's your Adams family. Monster House. Beetlejuice to a lesser extent. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's this this kind of a horror movie you can take a nine year old to and teach a paranormal. I mean, all all these films that are because I I think a lot of great children's stories have elements of horror. I mean, you look at the grim fairy tales. There's a reason we tell kids scary ass stories. It's because we need a way to tell them that they might die if they're stupid or mean, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it's it's a, a tricky needle to thread for sure. Well, it feels kind of like a slate of this kind of happened in the the late. I mean. Probably by the late '90s, because even in '99 we get the haunting, right? That's I mean, true. Which is PG-13, uh, but still feels darker. I mean, yeah, it doesn't I, feel it's like it's really marketed family towards or, families. Yeah, but uh, especially in the 2000s, I, I think we got this slate of of kind of horror films that were PG-13 intentionally mm-hmm. to kind of bring in a younger audience, and and it's really interesting. But it always kind of worked against it because, much like digital effects, the horror community is much maligned to PG-13 yeah, horror and I, films. And I think the problem with those films, that you know, the, the, we've got, as you mentioned, a lot of PG-13 horror movies, late 90s, early 2000s. I think the problem with those is they're trying to market those towards the horror movie crowd or teens who might want to become part of the horror movie. Because those teens are going to sneak into the R-rated movies. Don't, sure. don't sell a movie to them. Sell it to a family, though. That's the difference. You, go, you, you tweak it down about three levels, and then you're selling it to families. And I think that's a much more, again, if we're just talking about filmmaking as a business decision mm-hmm. that's a smarter move and it's, I, I, it's more the monster squad move yeah exactly but i think the problem with family horror and in, in post hoot 99 mm. is that it you mentioned paranorman it's all relegated to animation that's true right mm-hmm. i mean yeah. you got monster house you got Coraline, you got paranorman. hotel transylvania you get hotel a goosebumps every once in a while but that's the and yeah that, yeah i mean that's the kind of rare instance where you get and the the recent it kind of went under the radar with the Nancy Drew and the 
hidden closet or whatever it's yeah. called. That felt kind of like it had some thriller elements. Yeah, and then too. the house with the clock and the wall with, yeah. the, with the boy. And the, yeah, it's a weird title. And I would go back even, uh, and I'm not sure what the year is, but I'd go back to Arachnophobia. It's like, yeah, it's 93, like 92, 93. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere in that neck of the woods. It is a genuinely scary movie. But you could show it to a nine-year-old. But a kid could totally see it because, I mean, spiders are scary. And I mean, in terms of a lesson, like, yeah, stay away from spiders, you know? Well, I yeah. think even Jumanji has some of those elements. Right? I mean, there's yeah, a lot of horror elements yeah. in that movie. Absolutely. Body yeah. horror, too, weirdly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because you're tail growing, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not a good thing. Yeah, it's just, it's an untapped uh, genre, I really feel like. Well, I think in the mid-90s what happens, I mean, what ha- you scream, yeah. <laughs> right? And that kind of you're absolutely right. re-emphasizes, hey, we got to make these more adult horror films. Mm. And I think we get away from the Amblin type of family horror, and we don't really get to see it much in the 2000s in the way that we hopefully could have. And then we have the torture porn move in the uh, 2000 aughts with uh, awesome. Abu Grave. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, this this fun trope. Speaking of painting by numbers, uh, the uh, the ancient powers that dare not be meddled with, right? The, the, don't don't read the creepy Latin. Don't open the secret portal. Hey, Americans, don't do stupid stuff. Don't mess with shit you don't understand. Well, I mean, I, I, Edvar Said's um, Orientalism comes to mind here. Is mm-hmm. that it's just that which is other, which is not us, mm-hmm. and uh, this does have a nice. I mean, there's a, there's sort of a good side here. Is that uh, the, the the bad side is that it really just broad brush cliff notes all of Egyptian history and makes it into just the Western sort of you know uh, accommodation of that within uh, Christian sort of you know not even Christian Judeo Christian uh, Exodus story sort of stuff. So what does this guy do? He does the t- ten plagues of the Book of Exodus. Why does he spare Benny? Because Benny knows the language of the slaves, right? Rather than really going hard in the paint on. What's about, what, what about What's Osiris? Lord, What's a Horus? Yeah. yeah, Osiris, Lord of the Dead, who's after me now. Mm-hmm. Let's run away from that. How do we keep Osiris back? Cats are bad, but cats are just his Dracula garlic at that point, and that's mm-hmm. all it's useful for. Instead of really sort of saying, okay, I want to invest in you, invest in your culture, and that kind of stuff. And then it just becomes, this culture is kind of dangerous. Well, and I think the only... The way in which that works for me is that we are punishing people for not taking another cultural seriously. And I'm for that. I am too. But you're right. It's a missed opportunity to tell the aud- to educate the audience, to make the audience feel a little bit more well-read than when they went into the movie. And I think, uh, you know, like if we're going to use mass media for anything, you know, you can give people a, a very a, a still cursory, but at the very least a more well-researched version of mythology if you're making another culture's myths uh, part of your, your story, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think there there is this feeling um, in studios probably that, well, you know, while these myths and these cultures that started these myths are important to world history, nobody believes us, so we can do whatever we want. Nobody will get their feelings hurt. Well, maybe, but you're also setting it in North Africa in the 1920s, and there's a whole lot of stuff going on that uh, has cultural relevance and historical impact on the people that are still alive. So while you're doing a riff on uh, ancient Egypt's not going to hurt anybody's feelings, your riff on uh, post-war North Africa might. So yeah. that's something to keep in mind. It just you know you can make some American jokes here and there, and uh, but really, I mean, the American story is not the story right no. then. The story is, uh, I want to see more French legionnaires, and I want mm-hmm. to see much more British colonialism. Well, and I, see, I want to see more of the, they're not Bedouin, but they're basically Bedouin. The, the Magi, is that what they call them uh, in this film? Uh, they might call them the, Magi, The yeah. Guardians. Yeah, led yeah. by Oded Fair, who is uh, an Israeli man, yeah. a Jewish Israeli man. Yeah, you look, not everything's going to win every single time. What do you do? Uh, he's got a good look. He's so handsome. I actually, I love him as an actor, mm-hmm. uh, and I've always really liked him and wished he had 
uh, a better career. Uh, but he's very good here. And I, I think uh, or we, we talked about um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. What it made me realize is this film doesn't have any Nazis, which actually works to its favor because there's no bad guy. It's just people not communicating well with each other is mm-hmm. the bad guy. The Americans uh, are not communicating well with our heroes who are not communicating well with the Magi, and it kind of creates this... Uh, Nobody's a, a villain. Everybody's just misunderstanding each other and killing each other for no reason. And it does kind of, I mean, the film doesn't spend any time working on this, but it, it does give it that air of if people could just get their shit together, they might have had an easier time saving the world. Yeah. Man, I like that. I like that reading a lot. Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. Again, I just, it, it's it's fun to see a film put forward the narrative of if you don't take other people's stuff seriously, the curses you think are hokum and comic bookery might end up you know, blowing the planet up. So you mm-hmm. know, it's been 6,000 years. We don't know what happened there. Maybe it's best if we don't play with things that we don't know about. Well, I, I, again, just sort of don't act like you own it because you found it. Bingo. Yeah. And I think that's really the the primary problem is that um, finders keepers. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, it's not yours. It mm-hmm. belongs to Egypt. Well, that's the interesting thing about all films, I think, set in this particular period of uh, African history, right? It allows white people to tell stories where, oh, look, we call we did a colonize, so now we can do a period piece in this place and still let it star white people. Mm-hmm. And I think it shows a real lack of respect for all of the damage that was done to the world during that period of human right. history. It's it's a bummer. Uh, I mean, you, you, obviously it's worse in the 30s and 40s with your Gunga Dins and your films like that. Uh, but uh, look, while the Mummy is good and less racist than those movies, it's still not uh, spared from the, that same problematic thinking that uh, studios often have just because they don't give shit. You mm-hmm. don't think about it. Oh, we, we, don't, we don't care. what Those people aren't going to see this movie. This is for American audiences. Well, you know what? Maybe you should uh, treat American audiences with a little bit of respect and teach them something while they're at the movies. I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, we render. Will it, are we ready to render a verdict, guys? Yeah, I think we're good. I mean, that was all that I wanted to talk about. Well, all Let's right. do it. What do you say, Arthur? Shelf or trash? Shelf. I like this movie. I, I, I think I would put it on there. I, I mean, yes, I think it's a disposable film, but it's just so much fun. And it, just a lot of joy in, in genre filmmaking that we I don't feel like we get anymore. It doesn't feel exhausted and doesn't feel tired. And it, it just it's kind of a there's a pureness about it, I feel. And, mm. and so I, I'm going to put it on the shelf. I, I would make room for this over about 200 of the genre films we've had in the last dec- two decades since here. Yeah, I'm with you, Arthur. I'm going to put it on the shelf, too, uh, for that exact reason of now when we get a a popcorn genre, a good trash movie, it's usually a damn Marvel movie. It's usually And look, I love superhero movies. I like talking about them. Obviously, we brought up the MCU while talking about The Mummy. We didn't need to. It's just you have to to be able to talk about genre filmmaking anymore, and it's nice to just see something be its own thing that, yes, it, it calls on good trash of years gone by it telegraphs good trash of years to come it is super interesting in its place in history and i think uh in terms of building our good trash canon i think it's super valuable in the same way that something like face off is super valuable uh, it's a different kind of valuable and it's a different kind of conversation about genre filmmaking but i think it's super important so yeah i, I think it goes on the shelf it's it's completely adequate but so much of its time that i think it, it's worth being part of the conversation of what do we mean when we say good trash? I am going to go ahead and say trash with the caveat of I do want to dive into the franchise. My love may grow 
for this particular movie. Well, now that you've seen the launch of Rachel Weisz and Brendan Fraser's uh, huge careers, you got to go see the launch of Dwayne the Rock Johnson's huge career. I know, right? The Mummy Returns. Yeah, and that, I think that's interesting. And I love, I love Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Uh, so I definitely want to take a look at it. And Talk I think about some bad CGI. Oh, oh so man. bad. Talk about some uh, pre-steroid The Rock. Uh, very different looking guy. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't know that I will have my mind changed. Can we get sued for libel, by the way, or uh, for slander for me saying the Rock does steroids? Uh, Is he open about that? I don't know. I doubt it. He doesn't. He seems like the kind of guy who would be embarrassed for people to know that he does a cycle every once in a while. Yeah. Look, there's no way he does them all the time, but he definitely does a cycle like once every other year or once like every three years when he realizes he needs to get a little bit bigger. He blew up in unnatural ways, and so unless he's been jammed with gamma radiation, I don't think there's another you don't get that much bigger in your 30s you just don't it doesn't work that way i'm sorry i i hate to be the one like doubled in size i hate to be the one to tell you that Dwayne does steroids but he definitely does you can definitely pack on some muscle guys but no not like that Mm -mm. you don't get to have a second and third and fourth puberty Mm mm-hmm it's probably fair. But, uh, yeah, I don't know that my love would increase, but until it did, I would have to say, no, nah, it's still trash. I mean, it's good. I mean, definitely something that's worth watching, but I don't know if it's worth owning, and I don't think it's a, a, a sort of a piece to keep coming back to. I don't think it's got any of that stuff going for it, which is the watchability, rewatchability, uh, continued educational and or uh, ancillary usage. I just don't see it happening for this one. So um, with, with some regret, I go ahead and say trash. Well, there we are. All right. That's the show. We're done. Uh, we got to do it one more week, right? Yeah, probably. I don't want to do it. We've been doing it so long, it's going to be hard to quit now. Do we want to talk? To, yeah, let's do that first. Uh, I forget what order we do this Plug now. our stuff. Did we do that? Plug our stuff, then we'll announce next okay. week's movie. I can never remember our new order. Hi, it's thank you for listening to the entire show. It means a lot to us. Since you've been here this long, it would stand to reason you would like more good trash in your life. Here's how you make that happen. First of all, you just go to goodtrashmedia.com. It's where everything lives at. All the shows, both this show and other shows on the network, like The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, A Loose Five with Wampus Reynolds, uh, Got Love, You've Got Love podcast with Arthur and uh, Keisha, which is just, I listened to your guys' Brooklyn episode, and it was just a joy. It's just nice to remember how good Brooklyn is. Thank you. Uh, very good episode. You got the Borgo cast with Dustin and his rotating cavalcade of uh, Dracula and vampire lovers, and his fun little story segments where he reads you he reads you horror stories. What more do you want? Sometimes cold, ones he doesn't cold like. Cold tales from a it's, cold grave. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cold, cold, cold stories from a cold grave. There you go. So anyway, all of that fun content lives over at GoodTrashMedia.com, and you should definitely go there to check that out. If you want to be part of what happens with Good Trash Media every day, go to Twitter. Good underscore or trash uh twitter is a nightmare so if you're not already on i cannot in good conscience recommend it but if you already like being part of film twitter i like to think that we're we're doing our best to make it a better place uh you can obviously uh, give us money if that's something you're interested in doing you don't have to but if you want to go to patreon.com forward slash gtm and help us keep the lights on there's fun bonus content for you there uh last but certainly not least you've listened to a podcast before do the subscribing thing do the review thing apparently it's helpful i don't really know that it is I don't really care if it is. If you feel so moved to do it, though, we'd like it. Uh, that's been the social media segment of the show. Uh, this is what you get uh, instead of commercials. Uh, you're welcome. Can we get back to me begging off of doing any more shows? No. we're And it's so apropos that we brought up the MCU this week. Mm-hmm. Because next week, we're going to take one final journey into the MCU before the event of the decade arrives in Endgame. Now, wasn't Infinity War the event of the decade? 
I think it was the pregame. Mm, gotcha. That was the tailgating experience. Main event, though. Mm. The, the That was the undercard. This is the main event. That's right. Now they... For the millions leaving your houses around the world to go see this movie. So, yeah, uh, you got to get ready for the other movie. Yeah. So uh, we, we went out. We said, what would be the best thing to do? We had some voices on Twitter say, hey, you guys, you guys should do a Captain Marvel movie uh, review. So next week... We three guys are going to sit around this table. That's right. To talk to you yep. about Captain Marvel. Hey. I'm sure no one will be mad at all. Hey, Mr. Stark, I feel kind of funny. <laughs>